Please take out your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be in chapter 17. The only thing that I enjoyed more than the barbecue in Texas was serving as the translator for James. <laughs> should know that Texans cannot understand his Scottish growl. So I enjoyed that part. We come now to uh, three sections of Scripture that might seem initially to be very different, but I think they're connected, and I hope to show that to you as we consider this passage together. We'll pick up reading in verse 22, chapter 17. As they, being the disciples, were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, The sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray once again. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that in these next few moments, as we consider your word, we pray that your gospel, through the work of the Holy Spirit, might strengthen our souls, though all hell should endeavor to shake. Do this for the sake of your Son. In the powerful name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. So last week, James did a sermon on doubts and how we approach them. And in a sign of strength and vulnerability, he shared some of his own doubts. And that question that can be nagging to some of us is, you know, does God really exist? And is Christianity really true? Or have I wasted my life? Today, I want to ask the flip side of this question. The flip side of this question is this. What if it's true? What if God really does exist? What if the cross was historical fact and the resurrection is a reality? Then what difference would that make in our life? I think C.S. Lewis sums it up really well. It's the quote on the front of your worship guide. He wrote in Mere Christianity, God became man to turn creatures into sons. Not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. So the question I want to ask this morning, has the cross of Christ turned you into a winged creature? Have you been made a new creation in Christ? And I want to ask three questions this morning about the cross and about Jesus. The first question comes from verse 22 and verse 23. And the question is this. What did Jesus come to do? It's not a trick question. He answers it himself 
in this text. He answered it earlier in chapter 16, verse 21. Let Jesus answer that question. What did Jesus come to do? It says he came to be killed and to be raised on the third day. Simple. What did he come to do? He came to be killed. Do you, you, do you know why we're preaching on the cross for such a long time this fall? We're talking about the cross extensively because the central theme of the Bible is the cross. That everything in the Old Testament is pointing towards the cross. Things like the sacrifices, things like the temple, things like the priest, things like the Passover, things like the suffering servant in Isaiah. And even in the New Testament, they're pointing back to Christ. Remember when the angel appeared to Joseph, telling Joseph that Mary was going to have a child. And what did he say this child was going to do? He said this child was going to save people from their sins. When Jesus came to be baptized by John the Baptist, what did John the Baptist exclaim? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Everything in the Bible points to the death of Jesus. Friends, understand this. His death was not an accident. It was not a tragedy. It was not a coincidence. It was not a bad break. His death was not incidental to his mission. It was not his plan B. It was his purpose. No one took his life. He willingly laid it down. Now we're going to ask why in a minute. But let's not move too quickly past this. I want you to understand how unique this is. You see, the founders of every other major world religion died relatively at an old age at the height of their power and popularity. Though they may have suffered during a season, though they may have exiled, when they died, they were triumphant over their enemies. Moses, uh, Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, all of them died in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and Moses 120 at the height of their power and popularity. It makes sense that those religions still survive today. But what about Christianity? That makes no sense whatsoever on the surface. What do we know about Jesus? He didn't live to an old age. Where was he born? He was born in the middle of nowhere. To whom? To a peasant girl. He was raised in relative obscurity for 30 years of his life, the son of a carpenter. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He did none of the things that we would normally associate with greatness. He never wrote a New York Times bestseller. He never was elected to political office. He never went more than 200 miles away from his home. Eventually, public opinion turned against him. His friends betrayed him. His very best friend denied him. He was beaten. He went through the mockery of a trial. He suffered on the cross. He died between two criminals deserving of capital punishment. His last possession was gambled for by the guards. And he was so poor, he was buried in a friend's tomb. And yet, this man and his message conquered the Roman world. And almost 2,000 years later, one-third of planet Earth follows Jesus. Why? Because the cross 
became not a symbol of defeat, but of triumph. And the disciples were convinced, I think, of at least two things. One, the disciples and the early followers of Jesus in the first century were convinced that he actually physically rose again from the dead. And the second thing the disciples and the early Christians were convinced of was that he died for them. They understood why he died. And the cross not became proof of defeat, but it became a badge of honor and joy and power. We need to understand the same thing as the disciples. And when we do, we'll be transformed. So the second question, what did he, why? Why did he come to die? Now, it's not, it's not clear initially when we read verses 24 through the end of the chapter. But what happened? Basically, the disciples come back to the hometown of Matthew, Capernaum. And then the collectors approach his teacher and say, Does your teacher pay the temple tax? And Peter says, Yes. And he goes back to the house. And before he can even explain that to Jesus, Jesus says, And ask him a question. And Peter answers well. And then Jesus has Peter go fishing and finds a coin in the mouth of this fish. And he goes back and he pays the temple tax for Peter and Jesus. Now what in the world is a temple tax? We need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. We need to do a little context here. So hang with me. Exodus 30, 11 through 16. What has just happened in Exodus about 25 through 30, God has been giving the design of the tabernacle what the priests are supposed to wear, how they're supposed to build it, you know, what they're supposed to do in terms of offering sacrifices. And then he tells them about this temple tax. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give, what, a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering. To what? To make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make an atonement for your lives. Now, other than my inflection, what word was repeated there over and over? Atonement. Now, what in the world does atonement mean? It's the combination of three English words, at one meant. What does that mean? That doesn't help me, preacher. Atonement is a payment that brings two people together who were once estranged. The atonement money bought the sacrifices that were offered at the temple. What was the main purpose of the temple? To offer sacrifices and atonement for their lives. And what was the climax of the sacrificial system? It was the day of atonement. Where once a year, the great high priest got to go into the Holy of Holies, but only after... They had gone through an elaborate sacrifice when two goats without blemish and perfect were selected, brought to the high priest, and he would place his hands on these goats and he would confess the sins 
of all the people of Israel. On and on and on about the sins they had committed. And then once that was done, they would sacrifice one goat and they would take the blood of that goat and he would take it into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And then after the great high priest came out, they would then take the second goat and he would send the second goat out into the wilderness where we get the term scapegoat. What is that a picture of? One offering, two pictures. One One goat absorbed the punishment as the substitute for the Israelites, exhausting the payment that needed to be made. The second goat went away, symbolizing that our sins are removed from us, that we are purified, that as the psalmist says, the Lord will separate our sins as far as the east is from the west. Infinite distance. Our punishment is absorbed and our guilt is taken away from us. This is what the Day of Atonement was about. This is what the atonement, the temple tax, was for. Now, we actually understand the atonement on a day-to-day basis. When we offend someone else, what do we have to do? We have to make atonement for our sins. Sometimes all we have to do is apologize and say, I'm sorry I did this. Other times we have to say that and change our behavior. And even in some extreme circumstances, we are incarcerated for our sins and our crimes. And what's the language that we use? They have to pay their debt to society. See, we understand on a human level that atonement has to be made for our sin. Friends, how much more do our sins need to be atoned for before a holy God of the universe and sinful man? A debt must be paid and atonement must be made. And you know, millions of people inside the church and millions of people outside the church understand that there is a gap between holy God and sinful man. Why do I know this? Because the majority of religions and even many people in Christian churches do this. They think, if I behave, then I belong. That if I come to church, if I pray, if I give my offering, if I follow this moral code, then what? I can atone for my sins. Do you know what the the majority of religions and Christians do? We try to bribe God with our morality. And do you know what that leads to? I'll tell you what it leads to. No freedom. No joy. And if you actually think you're doing it, you become an arrogant, prideful person who no one wants to be around. And if you fail to live up to this moral code, You are a discouraged, covered in shame, guilty person who has no joy, no freedom. Friends, the gospel is so much better than this. It's so full of mercy and grace. You see, he didn't just give us a good plan, but he gave us good news. It's everything that Hebrews 9 and 10 is about. Do you really think that goats could atone for your sins? No. 
those goats were a shadow pointing towards the sacrifice of Christ. And Hebrews 9 and 10 will tell us they were offered on an annual basis and you always had to make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. But what Hebrews tells us, what we read in our assurance of pardon, that when Christ came, He was a sacrifice once and for all. You see, the goats were just a foreshadow. They were only pointing towards the cross. Now, this is a hard thing for many people to accept. You know why? Because people don't like the idea of a God of justice who demanded a blood sacrifice. People say, that's not my God. My God's a, a God of love, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't do that. Friends, I will tell you this. Yes, Jesus was an example. Yes, Jesus was a great teacher. But if he was only those things then we lose the glory of the cross and the love of God is minimized. Let me prove this to you. There was a story in Fox News in June 26, 2012 about this Florida toddler, a three-year-old little girl who was miraculously found alive in the arms of her dead mother one Sunday. You see, a tornado had come through uh, by, that was spawned by uh, Tropical Storm Debbie. And the mother, Heather Town, was found by neighbors in a wooded area after a tornado had struck her home. The neighbors were able to find the mother because they heard her three-year-old little girl, Anne Marie, crying. Neighbors would say when they found her, she was literally holding her baby, her little girl. And they took the child from her because she was having a hard time breathing. She was wrapped in barbed wire and was in a very dense section of woods about 50 feet back from there. EMS arrived and pronounced a mother dead on the scene. The little girl survived with broken ribs and a broken pelvis. And this is what her father, the mother who died, her father said about his daughter's final act. He said, it shows how much she loved her children. Her sister Crystal said she loved her kids more than anything. And we would agree. You see, substitutionary sacrifice moves us. But what if? What if the mother just told her family, I want to prove to you how much I love my little Anne Marie. Watch this. So though there's no imminent danger, she tracks down a hurricane, runs right into the middle of a tornado spawned by this tropical storm, and is killed and died. Did her, did her sister and her father say, Wow, she really loved Anne Marie. No, they go, she's crazy. I didn't prove anything. Let me prove to you how much I love you simply by dying. It's only moving if she dies to save her daughter. Substitutionary sacrifice. You see, the death of Jesus on the cross wasn't simply an example. It was a substitute for us. And what's the result of that? Jesus asked Peter, he says, do you really think the Son of Man has come to pay the temple tax? And he says, does royalty have to pay taxes? You know, like the Queen of England didn't pay taxes for a long time. Why? Because I own England. I'm going to pay taxes on what I own. And Jesus is like, I am the temple. And I don't need an atonement tax 
because I'm without blemish. I'm perfect. I am the spotless Lamb of God. But what did He do? He took on our sins. He made atonement for us. And the result of that, you see, He's a son. So He doesn't pay any tax. And He says, you know what? You don't have to pay it either because as children... Adopted in the family of God, you are free. It's what Galatians chapter 4 says. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Why did he come? He came for a purpose, to redeem us so that we could be received as sons and daughters. Now, why did he come? To die. <laughs> what, what did he accomplish? He purchased our salvation. I hope that makes you ask the third and final question. How do I participate in his death? How do I enter into the kingdom of God? And that's why we read this strange story at the beginning of chapter 18. There's this object lesson where he calls the disciples to him and tells his disciples after they had been arguing, who's going to be the greatest? And it's understandable because they just witnessed the mountain of, trans, uh, uh, trans, mount of transfiguration. He took Peter, James, and John up there. So they were probably a little jealous. You know, one of the interesting things about this is that you had to pay the temple tax if you're between the ages of 20 and 50. Why did only Peter and Jesus have to pay it? Some commentators actually think that Peter and Jesus were the only ones who were over the age of 20 explains why the disciples were so scared in the storm, doesn't it? And it's not perfect because one of the disciples would have been about 13 at that time. But it's interesting to think about how young the disciples were during this time. And Jesus calls this little child to him. And he looks at the disciples and he says, Unless you become like this little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. What is he talking about? Two characteristics of children that I want you to to leave with. One is this. Children are in a state of dependency. To come into the kingdom of God means that you are humble and dependent upon Christ alone. What do I mean about children being in a state of dependency? I have a six-month-old. His name is Deacon. He can't change his diaper. He can't give himself a bath. He surely can't feed himself. He is completely dependent upon me and mainly his mother for his survival. Without us, what happens? He dies. Do you know that's what Scripture says about you? About your condition? Now let me preach for a moment. The Bible tells us we are bad and our condition is very bad. Listen to the way that it describes it. The Bible makes it clear. We are slaves needing buyback. We are enemies needing placation. We are corpses needing resurrection. We are captives needing freedom. And we are criminals needing pardon. Well, all the Pentecostals say hallelujah. Well, all the Baptists say amen. Well, all the Presbyterians say, hmm, that's a good point. <laughs> that's kind of funny. Are you humbly dependent on Christ? For everything that you need, recognizing that your performance can gain you nothing. What's the second characteristic of children? Children are in a constant state 
of a trusting relationship. Do you know why my three-year-old doesn't worry? Because he doesn't care what's in my bank account. Do you think he thinks about groceries? Do you think he worries about any of the details of life? Why not? Because he has a trusting relationship, an expectation that I will meet his needs. It's why kids have no boundaries. It's why at 2 o'clock in the morning, Daddy, I need some water. You know, my neighbor's not going to do that. Why? Because my kids have a trusting relationship with me that they can expect me to meet their needs and they have no boundaries. You see, it's kind of like the two goats. The first goat, what? It's the objective reality of knowing that Christ died for my sins. The second goat was so that we would experience the reality of the gospel in our souls. You see, on the one hand, we're humbly dependent because we are worse than we ever imagined. But we have a trusting relationship because we know that we are loved and accepted, forgiven, and redeemed more than we ever hoped. And when this confidence in the relationship that you have with Christ permeates your soul, you're not just, just, you're just not as anxious about things in life. You just, don't, you just don't worry as much. And you can even trust Him in the midst of suffering because you know He is trustworthy. It changes you. Now thinking about that first question I asked you, has the cross changed you? I've shared before that my grandmother grew up in an orphanage. Uh, she was a Croatian. And that she was uh, desperate and dependent, hungering for someone to love her. Feeling like she was different because she was from the orphanage. She uh, recounted this story one time for my youngest brother, Tim, when he was interviewing her for a project in college. She was telling this story about, about growing up in the orphanage. And they used to go to church. And um, she says that, um, she wanted to become a nun, so she would steal holy water from the church, take it back, and then sprinkle it on her pillow so that she could see visions um, and thought that that would connect her with God. But one day, when she was a teenager, she went to a summer Christian camp, and there was a lady there named Miss McCluskey, and she was teaching a Bible study, and she was talking about how to have a personal relationship with God. And now, 50 years later, this is how my grandmother, my Mima, described that moment. She said, I always believed in God. It wasn't I didn't believe in God, but He wasn't real to me. You know, I had memorized the catechism and all those things, and I knew I wasn't good, but I knew I wasn't bad as some others. I knew there was a difference when I went to camp, and she was talking about how we can know Christ in a real and personal way, and it was a gift. Eternal life was a gift, and we trusted Him to take care of our sins. That's when I made a profession of faith in Christ, and it changed my life. It really did, and gave me a security that I didn't have coming up because I always felt like coming from the orphanage, I was different from other kids, and they wouldn't like me because I'm from the children's home. It gave me a sense of security knowing I was special to the Lord, that he loved me enough to die for me and had a plan for my life, even though I didn't know what it was at that time. My grandmother, my Mima, at that moment, 
was changed into a winged creature, a new creation. And though she's died and she's gone to be with the Lord, her Savior, she looks forward to the day when Christ will return and her body will be resurrected. She was transformed by the cross. Have you been? Let's pray. Father, we confess that our strength indeed is small. And that you tell us, child of weakness, watch and pray. So Father, we come to you this morning in humble dependence and trusting relationship that Jesus paid the debt that we owe, that our sins have been atoned for, that he has absorbed, he has exhausted, he has emptied the cup of wrath down to the last drop that I deserved. That he has imputed, that he has given to me his life of righteousness so that I do not come into the kingdom of God as a slave but as a son. Father, I pray that this truth would change us for the first time or would change us for the hundredth time and would not stop changing us until you come back. Father, strengthen us by this beautiful gospel and your grace. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.